What up, what up, fight fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Pound for Pound King of Boxing Podcasts, The Tale of the Tape. It's episode 79, and joining me yet again for an action-packed post-fight edition of The Tale of the Tape, my co-host and partner in crime, Vince Cummings. What up, Ben? What's up, Ken? Uh, Boxing delivers once again, my friend. We had an upset, a little redemption, and some controversy. Controversy, huh? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> who was the controversial figure this weekend? <laughs> Come on, you know who that is. Oh, man. The can man. <laughs> oh, back in action. Yeah, it was a busy, busy weekend this past Saturday night, October 3rd, as a busy, action-packed, electric month of October. And the close to 2015 is officially in full effect. Now, I guess we just have to wait for all these unbelievable events to just keep on piling on buddy (laughs) that's going to be an awesome close to the year and it's just began um subscribe to the tale of the tape boxing podcast on itunes leave us a rating and a review it is much appreciated indeed it helps the other boxing heads out there discover the tale of the tape you can also find the podcast on stitcher spreaker tune in and youtube Email the show and rant with us. Send your emails to podcast at theboxingrant.com. Rant with us. Well, my friend, let me just get down to action here. Let's do it. Let's get down to business. From the Stub Hub Center, the Mecca of Action Fights in Carson, California, as La Machina, Lucas Matisse, returned to action coming off of A spectacular bloodbath indeed from the Turning Stone Casino against none other than Siberian Rocky Ruslan Provodnikov. In his very next do-si-do takes on Victor Postal, the tall, the rangy, the much patient (laughs) Victor Postal waiting for his shot at the historic green strap, the WBC Junior Welterweight Championship on the line. At first glance, Vin, honestly, man, if I felt like we were watching a complete and utter physical mismatch in the ring. Yeah, it did look like that. And, I, you know, I had a bad feeling. Once that day started, I just had a bad <laughs> feeling for my boy, man. <laughs> uh, let's get right to it. The first bell opens. Matisse darts in but comes up way short. Postal ranging with his jab. The Ukrainian is staying on the outside. Matisse's cutting off the ring well. You know, at times, the jab to turn of Postal um, was on and pinpoint 
rocking Matisse to the face. But then at some points, there was a body game that came into play from Postal that to me in the first round seemed wildly unexpected. And that's where things started to get a little bit sloppy. Matisse gets close enough as Postal is quick to grab a hold of him. And Jack Reese even quicker to extend a warning to both fighters about clinching and rabbit punching. Postal is very leery of the power of the machine early on. Uh, I'm surprised they didn't put Jack Reese on the, on the, uh, on the poster. Are they going to start doing that now? <laughs> oh, man. This guy, I mean, come on. He, he just interjects himself too much. Is he a good referee? Yes, but, I mean, you're not the star. Okay, Jack, you are not the star. When did, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just, like, this new era of uh, everybody's included. You have to include everybody, right. you know? Everybody's the majority, right? <laughs> and what happened to the good old days? I don't even think it's a good old days. It doesn't have to be one of those nostalgic, you know, comments where as we get older, we say, oh, I wish it was like back then. I don't want to be one of those guys. No, but, <laughs> it, but is it really? I think it's sports in general. It is about the participants. And in my opinion, my definition of an official doing their job is that you don't even notice they're there. Um, I'm right with you 100% on that one. I do not want you affecting the outcome of whatever game or fight, whatever you're you're refing or judging. Just stay out of it. Yeah, man, because for me personally, man, I'm easily distracted. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's like, dude, like it's bad enough that these announcers haven't done a fight in two months, and they're they're stumbling and tripping all over one another. Oh, my God. But on top of it, not only are they stumbling and tripping all over one another, they're stumbling and tripping all over one another while talking about Jack Reese. <laughs> <laughs> they went on a, a round and a half just telling you how great Jack Reese was, huh? Oh, man, oh, man. To the second. Postal lands two nice, solid right hands. Jack Reese is thinking about putting on gloves as Postal finds a rhythm <laughs> and begins to pepper Matisse with the jab. Matisse gets pretty damn close at times, but is beginning to cover up instead of punching. Um, Postal is keeping him honest by sneaking in that follow-up right behind Matisse's guard. Because every single time he would come in, he'd get a little bit too close. And we talked about this in the preview, events about how Postal is not just a long-rangey fighter. He's Mm. very short and direct to the target. He is. And by sneaking those short, direct punches to Matisse, it put him in the guard, and it put him in a position where Postal was able to sneak that right hand behind the guard into the ear time and time again. I, I think he was completely, I mean, Postal took him out of his rhythm so well. He just looked kind of lost, man. Like, he's coming in, and it's like, did you have a, a plan before you came in, or were you just expecting to get into his chest and then be able to to do your work there? I, it was just a very, very strange performance. The, uh, yeah, the bizarre nature continued. In the third, a lot of clinching. And a large collision um, happens. Jack Reese making his present felt. This time, not by just separating them, but also giving them a lecture on how to position their bodies in the ring. <laughs> There's a big exchange in the middle of the third. Those Matisse lands some nice, solid inside shots. But as he peels away, Postal is pinpoint and hitting Matisse with some really accurate shots. This was the first point in the fight where Matisse just looked bamboozled and 
befuddled. He certainly did. He looked like, oh, shit. This yeah, is going to be a long night. Very much a deer in the headlights look. Um, in the fourth, a right hook to the body leaves Postal wincing. Right? Postal counters with his own quick shots downstairs. And Matisse drops his arm to cover up quickly. You really felt that one. Jack Reese is beginning to work to the body. <laughs> As Matisse pops Postal <laughs> with a big right hook uh, sending around the outside of the ring. Postal's clinching is really obnoxious now, but it's working and frustrating the machine. It's pretty clear why DSG wanted none. Yeah, and it's pretty clear. I, I think Freddie Roach established to Postal before this fight that uh, the clinch is going to be very key for us, son, because he's going to try to get inside, and we don't want him working once he gets in there. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that, man. Matisse is swinging wildly in the fifth with a big looping whiff, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I was like, he's resorted to this now. Yep. Right? Postal's making it look ugly, and Matisse is doing nothing to avoid it. The fighters are going to have to adjust if they don't want to share the spotlight with the referee. We <laughs> we head to the sixth, <laughs> and Matisse lands a thunderous right that shakes Postal. The announcers are talking too much about the referee. He shouldn't be a part of this narrative as it unfolds. In my opinion, in my opinion, he did a huge disservice to those that are attention deficit disorder inclined. <laughs> <laughs> we head to the seventh. Matisse lands a thunderous left hook, sending the momentum of Postal the other way. But Postal's chin is real, and he doesn't seem phased by anything. Postal shows us that he can hurt Matisse when he lets his hand go at the end of the seventh. Matisse lands his biggest shots when he sells out in the fight. For the first time, Matisse had won back-to-back -back rounds on my cards, Ben, mm -hmm. winning the sixth and the seventh, and bringing this fight within one point on the Boxing Rant scorecard. We head to the eighth round, and Postal begins to deploy a slick boxing performance. Matisse lost. The tall Ukrainian is starting to show us much more than that of a rangy boxer. Matisse only having success as he begins to flail. Matisse going to need a KO in this fight if he's going to win it honestly without the help of the judges. And you know what's funny is I consciously wrote that in reaction to the ebbs and the flows of what's going on in the eighth round, knowing full damn well, then that on my scorecard, I only had Postal up by one point. Yeah, and I was the same way. I had Postal up at one point at that point in time, too. It was just, I think more than anything you saw in that sixth and seventh round, that Matisse gave pretty much about what he had, not what he had left in the tank, but his best semblance of attack that he could put together. And He had no answers. He, he, had, he walked out of that round going, that, didn't, that did nothing to him. I don't know where else to go from here. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, and his body language yeah. definitely displayed as much. So we head to the ninth, and Matisse is getting dominated. Postal looks like he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Matisse darts in but doesn't punch. No. He's just barreling. How many times have we talked about, how, how many fights have we talked about in almost 80 episodes of this show where we talk about a guy that just for some inexplicable reason decides that he's going to make the effort and risk him his well-being by barreling in 
And then once he gets close enough to do what he has to do to win, he doesn't punch. No, all you got to do is throw a little jab out there as you come in, too. I mean, yes. is it that much to ask? And he did, no. he did no jabbing in that fight. Even, I don't care if you're the smaller fighter, a jab can still be effective. Who is a, who is a notoriously smaller fighter against every single person that he fights Carl Frampton oh, I was just gonna say if you don't say it I'm gonna say Carl Frampton he is smaller than everybody and he his jab makes him the more physically imposing fighter yeah it allows you to back a fighter down yes it doesn't matter how big you are no this is no different this this matchup right here between Lucas Matisse and Victor Postal physically looks no different than Carl Frampton versus Chris Avalos no you're right you're exactly right none Oh, man. Postal hurts the Argentine on the ropes in the ninth. Matisse's holding on for dear life. The machine's face is swelling from the repeated straight blows. Matisse's going to need a stoppage, desperation time in full effect. Fact is, he cannot box with this boxer, especially one who is as pinpoint accurate as Postal as we head to the 10th. And Matisse opens the bell with two hooks to the body that gets the Ukrainian's attention. Matisse won't let his hands go once he gets inside, though. Postal is coming down Main Street, and it's there all day long. Freddie Roach wants more offense because Matisse has no answers. The machine only has success when the rangy Ukrainian retreats. Postal catches Matisse on his way in. And on his way out, his face is busted. He looks crushed on his knees. A right hand that drops him, pummels him, finishes him. Matisse is stopped. Victor Postal is now the 140-pound junior welterweight champion of the world. The WBC Greenstrap now resides in the Ukraine. Victor Postal by way of 10th round knockout. Shocking. Uh, Has any fighter in boxing this year made a statement like that? Has there been any fighter to make a statement that big? In 2015. We talked about it then. I don't, it's hard to find a fight that had more ramifications than this one. You're exactly right. And Postal came out there and took it, boy. He took that thing. It's crazy, man. I, you know, I think that the, it's not even the knockout that gets me. It, it wasn't even a really big punch. You know, it's, it's just Matisse got dominated. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing that is... That's the thing that is so much more shocking than the loss. Because we've seen two relatively evenly matched fighters, and it ends in a knockout because both are just going balls to... I mean, come on, man. You know, Castillo Corrales. I mean, he, right. he, he, that, he's a freaking pick em. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You had two of the very best fighters on the planet. Two of the very best fighters of a generation. In the ring together, 50-50, flip a damn coin. Right? Mm-hmm. And it ends in a knockout. Well, guess what? This one was not that at all. This, no. It, it really was not a competitive fight. And once Postal stopped clinching, it made it, it... Vince, I have to be honest with you, man. He could have stopped Matisse a lot earlier than he did. He could have. You're right. If he was a little bit more active. I, you know what? I think and a, a, a lot of what coming into this fight people expected from Postal was to use his range and jab at a distance and punch at a distance. I think he more than anything, the way he used his range was to set Matisse up to get him to overextend himself and reach on his way in and come that little bit further. Ting. And, yeah, pop, pop. <laughs> Let me take another half step back. Whoop, you whiffed. 
Yeah. You know, man, look, there's a lot of things that, that we can take out of this in hindsight. Okay. Matisse is only great against guys that are right there to be pummeled. Right. Okay. That's, that has been an argument and a, you know, people are taking that stance and using that point of view. I, I don't buy that in this case. No. Um, you know, I will say this. I think he, his track record, his record now 37 and four with 34 knockouts. If you look at it, his toughest fights, it does not matter your, your, your stance on the Zab Judah or Devin Alexander fights. It's irrelevant. Right. Whether you thought he won or lost those, he was in tough. His toughest fights have been against the guys that can box. And, you know, at the end of the day here, man, I understand that size played a role. Yeah. I mean, that was a huge factor in this fight. I mean, you'd be, you'd be really, really selling this fight short and not painting the whole picture if that wasn't part of your diagnosis for, for what happened here. But I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, Vin, you tell me you disagree all day if you want to, okay? In my opinion, the difference in this fight was this, is that Lucas Matisse just came out of two wars. He's 33 years old, and we may have just seen a guy, because we saw a guy who just literally, I texted you right after the fight, and I said, I think he broke his orbital bone. Right. Okay, because of that, the popping sound from that punch. Mm-hmm. We also saw a guy quit in the ring. Okay, a 33-year-old who his excuse, his excuse wasn't that I was hurt. His excuse was, ah, I don't really feel like taking a beating. It, it says a lot when you're, you know, for that 10-second count when he's on one knee, he... He went through in his own mind that, you know what, the smarter move here is I'm just going to stay down. I, I could be Lucas Matisse, the machine, and get up and try to go to war, or I could protect myself for down the line from here because I'm going to lose this fight, and I'm only going to get hurt worse. Yeah, and that, but here's the thing, though. That frame of mind to me oh, is what it's, it's the beginning of the end. Exactly. That's, that, that's the only thing that that says to me. I respect him for wanting to protect himself. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I will never take anything away. I'm, I'm not going to say he quit. It, quitting, he could have fought. He, he could have got up and fought, but at a, at a serious risk that none of us will really ever know. No, uh, we'll no. never hear about the injury probably. No. Very little about it. So you, I, I just, you know, I, it's, hard to, it's hard for me to say that a guy quit when we've seen him being a fight of the year the year before and what is the leading candidate for the fight of the year now and to think about that guy quitting – I don't know if maybe it's just in my own mind I can't I can't compute that like no he doesn't quit. Well, you know, look man, I don't mean it in the sense that he's a quitter. Right. I don't you know, I I don't say that in the sense that I feel like it's an indictment on his character. Mhm. I've say it is I think he quit. <laughs> I yeah. He threw in the towel. He didn't want to fight anymore. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It look, I don't look at it like, oh, he's a quitter now. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at this guy's accomplishments. You know, I'm sitting here looking at what he's done in his career, and the guy's anything but a quitter. Um, but at this moment in time, he, I guess, in, you, you give him a gold star for having the wherewithal to realize I'm getting dominated, and I can't beat this guy. Right. So why continue? Why go forward? Um, but to add on to what you said, Vin, I don't know what's left for it. He's gonna get. He's probably gonna go back to Argentina and rest for a while. Okay, we'll probably see him sometime. Middle of next year, okay? My guess is he's going to be in tough next fight. I, I, I don't see how you can put him in tough. Against I, a young fighter? I, I just, personally, I don't see that. And here's why. And I'll tell you why. You tell me why you think he's going to be in tough. I'll tell you why I don't think he's going to be in tough is because Golden Boy doesn't have 
enough hens in the hen house. Mm-hmm. Okay, they they've got all their chickens in one basket. Okay, I'm a, some more poultry references here, <laughs> right? But they don't. I mean, so are they just going to let Matisse? Are they going to throw him in there with another? Throw him in there a with young, a Roscoe. Uh, what if a Roscoe embarrasses him? And yeah. they, then guess what? Golden Boy. They've got Lemieux, Canelo, and Matisse. Yeah. That's who they have ready. They have more coming up. Right. They have one of the deepest stables of young Mexican-American Mexican fighters on the planet. Yeah. And they got some dynamite guys that are going to be top-notch here in the next five years. But right now, in a fledgling, we're holding on by the seat of our pants right now. Who knows if we've made any money over the last few years because of everything that's happened. Right? And then you got your other best guy in a huge fight <laughs> coming up. Now, Canelo, I'm not so worried about. Right. No, they'll be fine there. You know, because he's only 25 years old. Right. Matisse, on the other hand. Yeah, that, that, that put a hurting on Golden Boy big time. No doubt about it. What about this equation? What if they put, what if they just went ahead? Because now Pacquiao's not going to fight Matisse next. No. What if they just went ahead and put Pacquiao in with Crawford now? And Pacquiao loses. I might, you know, personally in that fight, until I see an actual fully healthy Pacquiao right. regress, I still got to go with the veteran in that one. Mm-hmm. But if Pacquiao were to lose, because it would be a 50-50 fight. Oh, definitely. Um, Pacquiao versus Matisse makes a little bit more sense with both of them coming off of losses with a soft touch after that one loss. Right. What do you think? Uh, uh, Why do you... uh, uh, Let's... I don't mean to interrupt you, but let me get you to answer the question from before. Why do you think they're going to put Matisse in tough? I I just... Because he's the type of guy that that we've seen over his careers. Not a a guy that... uh, an, An age being another factor in this. He's not a guy that likes taking the easy road. I don't think he ever has. No. He, he, he's always fought tough guys. And I think the age on top of that, when he comes back, he's going to say, look, I don't have time to fight three more fights and, and, and try to build this thing back up to another title shot. Put me in with a contender that you think is on the way up. I beat him and I line myself right back up. Maybe one fight away from getting a shot at another belt. But I, he's... At his age, he doesn't have time. He doesn't have time for soft touches, and unless he just wants to get paid, which a lot of fighters, you know, I, I can't say I blame him for doing it. Okay, let's say they want to do that. What you just said, I got the perfect fight for him: a rematch with Umberto Soto. Why not? That's perfect. You're you know right. what I mean? Yeah. A st- there's another StubHub Center fight. It'll do well. Mm-hmm. Right? Why not? Hey, I mean, th- there's your in tough. Fight right against the veteran that's going to give you that's going to contest who wants a rematch who who said you know that a large part of sort of the way he was just not mentally even present for his first shot at Matisse was because his family was kidnapped. Yeah, that was an in the interesting lead up to the story. Yeah, but here's the thing, man. Look, if you it look if you live in Mexico and you're a prominent figure, it's you have about a hundred percent chance. That your family's going to get kidnapped. Yeah, they're going. They're coming after some ransom. Yeah, ransom kidnappings happen to famous people in Mexico all the time. Yep, all the time. So you know, anyways, that's neither here nor there. But when I was watching that story in the lead up to the fight, and they were talking about Soto and his family getting kidnapped, I was like, "Why would you still live there? I know it's your home, but I could. I don't care." 
if if dude, if I live in Maryland and my my family keeps getting kidnapped for ransom, I'm gonna move. Yeah, I mean, it only makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, what kind of relationship he has with his with his wife and kids? <laughs> you know, maybe he doesn't, he doesn't like either of them. I don't know, man. I don't know. Oh, dear. I mean, it makes sense. That fight makes perfect sense. Both old guys coming off of losses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the Pacquiao thing's still there. You know, real quick before we get to the fight involving, uh, man, the rugged, rugged, much respected Humberto Soto. Um, you know, something that you and I haven't really talked about, and I think it's something that, one, we've overlooked. Um, you know, two, we had a, you know, about a month there where, um, you know, you were trying to figure out that whole Bruce Jenner thing. Um, so, you know, and you're back. Hey, I'm here. <laughs> I'm hanging. <laughs> you're, yep. You're definitely hanging. Um, you know, part of this equation, when people are trying to determine on who Pacquiao's next opponent's going to be, you keep hearing Bob Aram talking about how, yeah, yeah, Pacquiao walk away and you know, that'll be it. We're just going to put him in tough and you know, he's going to run for Senate in the, in the Philippines and then that's going to be it. Pacquiao has three fights left on his contract. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I mean, we. I feel like I forget about that every time I have a conversation about this. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying it's something that's in my mind. I knew he had fights left. And uh, as far as we've heard, he's he's ready to fulfill all of those fights, and he's not going anywhere. If you just take his words, you, you throw Bob Arum in there, and he sounds like he's ready to uh, let's let's jettison him on along. I got a couple other guys here. Well... Yeah, I mean, let's jettison Bob along. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, so there you have it. Um, it'll be interesting to see what's going on with with Lucas Matisse um, because, man, it was unexpected. Victor Postal, though, you want to see Postal and Crawford? That's a, that's a tough fight, man. I, I think if you were scared of Victor Postal, Victor Postal before Saturday night, uh, you are certainly even more scared now. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's tough for him to find good fights, man. He may end up, you know, he may end up along the road of Triple G at, to some certain extent. Obviously, he's nowhere near that stratosphere. But you may find him having to kind of pick guys off that you really don't want to see him fighting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. If you kind of run through that that entire division, um, uh, there's plenty of talent there. Who's got the balls to step into the ring with him, though, man? That's, I mean, that's really, yeah. I mean, that's really the crucial thing uh, here. I know, I know one guy who will, and I know one guy that I think has probably got the best chance against him, and that's Amir Imam. Yeah, well, Amir Imam wants that damn belt. Yeah, and he's made it very, very clear he's coming after the WBC belt. I, I saw he sent out a, a tweet that said early 2016. It's it's going down. I'm fighting Postal. <laughs> hey, shit, man. Yeah. More power to him, man. I, I agree. You know, boxing needs more people with that with that mentality and that mind frame. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge Amir Imam guy, man. I, I am too. The more and more that that we've grown to know him and and see him fight, boy, he is he's something special. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I I was I was really intrigued by just watching him fight. Mm-hmm. But man, as soon as he opens his mouth, I'm just like heart shapes start shooting out of my eyes. <laughs> I love uh, anybody in this sport that steps up to the mic and it doesn't just like, look, like, like the new reputation 
I don't know if it's a new reputation, but it's a reputation he's built for himself over the last year, is that if you sign with Eddie Hearn, that's pretty much a guarantee that you're going to spend a majority of your time putting other people's names in your mouth right. and then pull the bait and switch. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. They offered Chris Eubank Jr. the Triple G fight, and the Eubank turned it down. Guess what? Not even a, not even a few days go by, Eubank signs with Eddie Hearn and Matchroom. He starts throwing Triple G's name into his mouth again. Of course. Of course. And, and you know it's not going to happen. No. You know it's not going to happen. But a guy like Amir Mom, he means it. Oh, he's... And very few, in an era where guys literally talk about dangerous fights more than they ever negotiate them. Yeah. Uh, a mom is dead, dead serious about unifying the 140-pound division and then moving up and doing the same thing as he climbs the ladder. All right. Let's talk about this. Okay. Postal versus Provodnikov. Huge mismatch? Yeah, I think Postal would just ping him all night. Okay. Um, Terrence Crawford. Talked about that. That's a tough, tough, tough fight. That's a, that's a toss-up, 50-50. Adrian Broner, to me, I think that would look like a whack-a-mole. Uh, yeah. That, you know, Broner, Broner would get schooled. His little head would pop up, and then Postal would just be like, thump. <laughs> Jesse Vargas, I think that would be a competitive fight until Vargas um, would probably maybe – he'd probably lose – 11 rounds. Yeah. He'd make it interesting. Yeah. Watchable. Yeah. Mauricio Herrera. That seems to be a very logical opponent for the next fight. It does. That's a t- I mean, another little guy in there against him. I, I don't know. I feel like they're Pope. all Benavidez and is in a, in a mom, you know, are the only two that are the same size as this guy. And I think Benavides, unless he's a guy that, that, kind of morphs into a just a super super aggressive fighter i don't i don't think he stands a if chance. he had that mentality oh yeah he's he's got the he's got he can punch well enough but it's just he's not aggressive enough no his, dude his whole body language he likes to lay on the ropes and yeah. let his opponents come to him mm-hmm. like that it's like okay like if he came forward he'd probably be the most dangerous guy in the division yeah i, I agree he's a scary puncher uh yeah man I just hope we get the uh a mom versus postal man that sounds like uh that sounds like a good time to me oh my god all right so we have a new uh 140 pound champion you have to think that he um moves right to the top of the list yeah right with Crawford I did hear Doug Fisher say uh Doug Fisher from Ring TV um dot com say that if Postal and Crawford were to do the dance that it would be for the vacant ring. 140-pound title. Well, that makes perfect sense because yeah. they're two, the two best that I can see right now. Absolutely. All right, so let's keep on trucking here. Let's get to the co-feature, Humberto Soto versus Antonio Orozco. Humberto Soto enters the fight 65-8-2 with 35 knockouts. Orozco 22-0 looking for the next step. We open the bell, and Soto is setting everything up off the jab. Once he establishes control of the ring, he stands his ground dead center. Orozco tries to push forward, but Soto flings the jab to distract the youngster and then comes up with a big follow straight right behind it. Oh, man. Just blocking the vision of Orozco out the gate. The sharp right that stops Orozco in his tracks um, has the young upstart troubled. And you can see the look on his face. is like, I didn't think that I was going to have to deal with this jab tonight. Orozco is used to being the pressure fighter, but Soto has been the general of the ring in the opening round. 
Oh, he certainly was. He uh, he proved to everybody in that first round that this is no shop worn. Humberto Soto, this man came to fight again. Orozco's trying to launch his attack against the Rangier veteran, but Soto thwarts it in the second, parrying the jab of the young fighter, swatting it away. Orozco digs deep and starts to maneuver his way into Soto, but both fighters are exchanging hard shots in between. The others exchanges. It's back and forth in a highly technical action fight so far. You rarely hear that, but it really was just that in those opening rounds. It was a technically sound, well-boxed opening couple frames that was mixed in with some aggression. Those, honestly, people mistake me all the time, Vin, as being complete bloodlust that I just like to see, you know, pure action wars. I love to see a technically sound boxer who is active. Those, those are yeah. by far my favorite. Oh, well, you mix the two of them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's perfect. And, and yeah, you're, this fight was a very, very good fight through three. And I, you just, you're impressed with the young kid and the fact that he is in there with a savvy, savvy veteran and seems to, you know, he's figuring it out. He's kind of, he's taking his lumps a little bit early from the old man, but he's working his way through it and he, he's, you could see his will is there. He's there to fight. He's there to win. He was not backing down one step from Soto. No. And really the key was trying to figure out the counterattack because Soto was pinpoint. He was timing everything Orozco was doing, mm-hmm. and his counterattack game literally showed the difference in experience that Orozco was actually going to have to learn something in the ring, which will actually prove invaluable down the road for him. Oh, of course. His ability to adapt to a counterattack that Soto – had deployed on him. What was your scorecard after three rounds? Uh, after three, I had it two three or two one Soto. Okay, I had it. I had it uh, uh, a wash. I had it um, uh, a, sh- a wash. A sh- I had it a shutout. Three rounds to nothing for Soto. Um, we head to the fourth. The Roscoe pushes the action to the opening bell. Soto pushes Orozco along the ropes and keeps him on his back foot, but Orozco gets tied up with Soto and spins the veteran around. As Orozco punches Soto a few times behind the head and the referee warns him. But Orozco recovers from the reprimand and gets Soto on the ropes. The veteran is holding on to Orozco's left hand, but Orozco is not phased at all and starts to actually, that hold worked against Soto, and Orozco literally started to slam Soto's head backwards with that one-handed attack. He did. I mean, Soto screwed himself. The body work was heating up from the young and rising contender, and things may have just began to shift. Uh, We fast forward to the seventh, and Orozco is staying behind the jab until just the right moment, timing his shots very, very effectively. The early counter shots and success of Soto is now fleeting. Orozco is now the one who is countering the attack of Soto when Soto is able to sustain them. At all, but at this point, the veteran, the old fighter, is beginning to show his wear, and he's not landing nearly enough. Soto needs to go back to his roots, what made him a great fighter, yep. and that is the body attack. But through seven rounds, then Soto had none. There was no body attack. Yeah, and that's what he's known for, and it's very, very strange. I guess you know he saw something in tape that he had a game plan coming in, and that was unnecessary. And maybe it was a punishment that he took in some fights, concentrating on the body and dropping his hand so much that he's like, you know what? 
I'm older. I don't need to be taking those shots. Let me keep my guard up a little bit. Work upstairs. Yeah. Well, it proved to be the kryptonite in this fight for it sure. Roscoe's digging with nice uppercuts in the eighth, launching him from a disguised angle, making Soto think a body hook's coming and instead fires right up the middle. Soto is moving forward and forcing the direction of the fight now, but Orozco is outboxing Soto in the eighth, setting up shots behind a jab, and nice punches to the side and to the torso. Soto will need to diversify his attack and force the envelope in these closing rounds. Momentum has shifted for sure to Orozco, right, as he's just playing busier at the opening bell in the ninth, flicking a triple jab to set the attack in the ring. An uppercut followed by a double jab puts Soto on his heels, and Soto sidesteps the aggression with a lunging right and throws a big counter hook that sends Orozco flying off balance. Soto still isn't mixing his punches up, because as soon as he has this success, he then begins to look a little bit too predictable in there. Out of nowhere, a solid shot to the crotch drops Soto to the ground in pain. And then the referee decides to penalize Orozco a point. Pretty shocking. Did you see a warning? I saw no warning. Uh, I mean, it was a, a pretty bad low blow, but I mean, I've seen worse and not having a point taken. Uh, uh, it's too close of a fight. Warning's good, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, way, way too close. The round ends sloppy with a tangle, and Soto hits the canvas again. What a freaking swing round this was. Yeah. You know? At this point in time, this round, I, I, I have the fight. Coming into this round, I had it 76-76 for Orozco, okay? Orozco winning three, winning five, seven, and eight, mm-hmm. with Soto winning six, based off of the fact that I had Soto winning the first three rounds of the fight. So after the eighth round, Orozco winning the last two rounds, I have it 76-76. Mm-hmm. This round here with the point being deducted, a round that I thought Orozco won, makes it a 9-9 round on my card and keeps it tied 85-85 through 9. I am. I think I am right with you at that point. So we head to the 10th. It's 162 to 161 punches landed. Don't get much closer than that. No, not at all. Um, it is definitely the tail of the tape. Get it? Get it. Hey, hey, ho. See what I did there? Um, Orozco comes out firing and is met with two big shots, a right and a left. But he returns volley with a shooting uppercut, and behind it comes a rapid-fire double left hook landing flush on Soto. Soto has rocked Orozco more than the kid would like, but Orozco counters with one, two, one, two. Soto is pressing forward. Throwing a five-punch combo from all angles and rocks Orozco again. Taking the final round on my card. My final scorecard, Vince, and there were many that agreed right along with me. Mm -hmm. I had it 95-94 to for Humberto Soto. I had it 95-94 the other way. I gave the 10th round to Orozco. I I think there's a couple swing rounds in this fight. Uh, the final scorecards, once they were read, Jesus. 98 to 91. Come on, man. What, what are these guys watching? So they're, they're saying that Orozco won nine yeah. rounds? Yeah, nine rounds. It's just, man, it's so disrespectful to the efforts, man. It, just it based is. off, even I don't believe in giving green ribbons for effort. Right. I, you know me, man. Yeah. I'm the antithesis of that philosophy. If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't say that. Who, who would say that? That's, <laughs> that's dumb as shit. Uh, I must have been high. <laughs> oh, man, I totally botched that. But that's pretty much what he said. Um, yeah, come on, man. Dr. Point and still... He's Dr. Point and still wins 9-1 to one and 8-2 to two on the other two scorecards? Yeah, complete joke, man. Come on, guys. Let's at least pretend. Yeah. The stats were in complete favor of Soto. When it, are they going to change up? Like, something needs to be changed. Don't put these guys around the ring. They're influence, there's too many outside influences. I completely agree. Uh, Closed-circuit television in a room by yourself, headphones on, just watch the fight. You don't need to hear the announcers. You don't need to hear the crowd. No, and there should be five of them. Yeah, there should. There really should be. You get a better a better look at, you know, it's just something's got to fucking change, man. I completely agree. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of most recent fight, really, um, was the last true TV card when Timothy Bradley convinced the referee to stop the fight. He's announcing the fight, and he's yelling. The referee is literally from, you and I are like four feet away from each other right now. Right. And he was literally that close to the referee. The camera goes to Timothy Bradley. He's looking up at the referee, telling him to stop the fight. Yeah, that, that's a complete joke, man. 98-91, Orozco, unanimous decision. Good fight. Good experience for the young and rising Orozco. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, you know, it, it's tough for him because he's going to hear robbery. You know, Soto got robbed, and he didn't deserve to win. But he fought a good fight, tough fight. Yeah, oh, and, no doubt. And I don't – I you don't want to take anything away from that kid. He proved that at, you know, the young age that he's ready for the best. He, he can hang with anybody. Dude, I thought that the last fight that we covered for Antonio Orozco, um, you know, I thought, dude, he looked great against – Steve Forbes, he looked great against Emmanuel Taylor. He's high octane. He brings it nonstop. Mm -hmm. Um, He's got a style that is infectious. I think that this guy has a really, really good chance here in the next year or two um, to win a belt. I think he's going to get some shots at a belt. I just wonder if the the upper echelon of the 140-pound division can't. I think he'll have a hard time against them. Yeah, and it's going to be all about opportunities, though, too. Yeah. You know, like some, I, some good matchmaking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that he really has much of a chance against a fighter like Terrence Crawford or, or, or Victor Postal. Um, the politics of the sport are going to tell you that he's not going to get a shot at Adrian Broner. No. You know, and no. that and that clown belt. Um, He'd probably do very well against Broner, too. Oh, yeah. I think it's the, he's the exact kind of f- fighter that Broner struggles with. A guy that is going to be there in in boxing in rapid succession, you know, um, yeah, man, I'm not I'm not real sure, but um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. You know, not to backtrack too far, Vin, but uh, you know, if they want to put Matisse in tough, and this kind of as we're talking about, you know, potential opportunities to win a belt for a guy like Antonio Orozco, is Cesar Rene Cuenca, the guy who just beat Ick Yang for the IBF belt. Yeah. A fight in Argentina, Matisse versus Cuenca for the IBF. Yeah, that, hey, that makes perfect sense uh, on every level. Stylistic nightmare for Matisse, though. Oh, my God, is it? Because Cuenca is slick as snot, man. He's just a little quick dude. Gets in and gets out. Um, also on the card, Julian Ramirez had an opportunity to do an interview um, with one of our close close colleagues and partners from Round by Round Boxing. Dot com. You can find the interview on theboxingrant.com and the interview and the article that I wrote 
to go along with it about um, Julian Ramirez, one of the best prospects in the game today. Return to action. And I'll tell you what, man, he was composed. He was precise. Julian looked to counter with very accurate combinations in this fight in a direct reaction to what Partida was doing. You know, when I was talking to him, and one of the things that you and I talk about all the time when we talk about Julian Ramirez and the questions we ask are about, and the things we really like about him is his footwork and how he's able to adapt to his opponent in the ring. Mm -hmm. Um, And, man, did he do this with this Partida kid, man. Partida throws a straight right. Ramirez digs with a right hook to the body. And Partida brings a right hook uh, or a cross, whatever you want to call it, um, and Julius sidesteps the thing and pops him with a counter left all night long. Every single time Partita came with that straight right, Ramirez would just dig with the right hook to the body. Every single time, man. Every single time Partita would have Ramirez standing there in a wide base thinking that he would not be able to move and he would bring that right hook. Julian sidesteps, pops him with a counter left hook all night long. At one point in the third round, Ramirez saw Partita um, out on his front foot just completely lunging, completely lunging. And Ramirez throws four consecutive uppercuts, hmm. just like pop, 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 pop. I mean, it was, oh, it was a thing of beauty. Ramirez and Partita have a nice firefight um, exchange to close the third round. And when the bell rings, Julian turns to walk to the corner and throws his hands up over his head and starts clapping his gloves together to applaud the action and then starts to fire the crowd up by lifting his arms to say, come on, get Get loud. Right. To fire him up. I mean, he was loving it, man. The kid is so poised. Yeah, that's, he, that says a lot. He loves, just loves to fight, man. I, I always say, you know, especially with a prospect like Julian Ramirez, the, the final step in, in, you know, saying that this guy's ready is what you spoke of when you started talking about him. the kid can adapt in the ring. Yeah. When you can adapt, when you don't necessarily need a plan A, a plan B, you just go in the ring and you figure it out when you're in there what is going to work. Because you can look at all the tape you want. It's a lot different when it's right in front of you and it's throwing punches at you. And uh, to me, he's got that. And it's only a matter of time for this kid. And it's only a matter of time. Yeah, and I think his opponents, in some regards, kind of dismiss him a little bit because, you know, he's skinny. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not jacked. Um, he's got, you know, he doesn't have... Adrian Broner hand speed. Right. Um, you know, but what he does have is this the ring IQ, wherewithal he boxes way beyond his years. His his lineage, I mean his bloodlines, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean the guy has like ro- like boxing royalty in his blood, the nephew of um old Gennaro. Yep. And you know, I see the intangibles of a kid that wants to be great, is so calm in the ring. I don't think it really matters who they put in front of him. I think he's going to maintain that same level of wherewithal. Like, Jordan in the zone, everything just slowing down around right, him. Right, yep. you know That's what it looks like when he's fighting, but it looks like he's operating at a different speed than whoever he's in against. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man, so that does it from the StubHub Center in Carson, California. Victor Postal um, in, I guess, what some are calling a huge upset. I think the upset came... Um, the fact that he stopped the machine with a just a really, really impressive knockout performance. Um, Antonio Roscoe continues his climb and is looks like he's ready for a title shot if it should come his way. 
Um, and of course, El Camarón um, does the deal. And check out that interview. Um, it's only about 12 or 13 minutes long. You find it on the homepage at theboxingrant.com or you can find it on our partners page, roundbyroundboxing.com. So we head to the natty. <laughs> Adrian Broner, AB, about business, about billions, about whatever, man. Yeah, whatever. Um, against Habib Alek Verdiev for the vacant WBA Junior Welterweight Championship. I was kind of surprised at how long Broner's beard was for the fight. I mean, I was surprised that he had it. I wasn't surprised that he was allowed to have it. Right. <laughs> He's allowed to do whatever he wants. Right. Right? But, uh, yeah, both of them. He's like, yeah, I ain't shaving. I ain't shaving for nothing. I got a Lamont Peterson beard going. That's, that's the new AB, man. Broner's entrance, shucking and jiving. Oh, my God. I love it, though. Uh, it so cracks do, me up, dude. Dude, I should have videotaped it and put it on YouTube, but I was just afraid of probably the just, I would have been trolled. It probably would have gotten like a million hits on YouTube, though. But I was doing... Uh, my impression of Broner's entrance for my wife when she's sitting on the, <laughs> oh boy, you should have seen me. I was getting it, man. I was shucking and jiving. I was, you know, oh man. Dude, there's a, there's one point when he's walking down the aisle and there's some, he's like a Latino fellow leans over the railing with the thumbs down and the middle finger. I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. I have it written right here. That was the next thing coming out of my mouth. I have, I have it written here. It says question mark to Vince. Did you see the Hispanic guy near the ring leaning over the guardrail, one hand giving an emphatic thumbs down and the other one flipping the bird? That was fucking awesome, <laughs> man. Oh, it was perfect. It was almost like he was like like placed there on purpose. <laughs> All right, man, let's get to the action. Habib is fidgety at the opening bell. Broner is patient but looks confident. This is not the approach that will serve the Russian well in this fight. Um, his strategy I think whatever it was, he threw it out the gate because there's no way in hell that John David Jackson would tell him to fight the game plan that we were about to see over the next 11 rounds. I think that's pretty much what he is. I think that's all he has to offer in the ring. You know what I think, too, along with what you just said, is a lot of people were giving grief um, to the trainer of Sergey Crusher Kovalev for the way that Alec Verdiev came in with this just ridiculous game plan or lack thereof, they were giving him crap. People don't realize this is that Khabib didn't come to the States until about a week before the fight. Yeah. That he was actually trained by Roy Jones Jr. in Russia for two months. And then he came to the States and John David Jackson got him for a week. Yeah. Well, it makes sense after that performance that Roy had him for <laughs> a couple weeks. Oh man, you just <laughs> what is Roy gonna? What about Roy Jones Jr.'s game? Is he gonna be able to hand over to Khabib Akhlaverdiev? Flashy, yeah, he's not gonna be that. <laughs> flashy, flashy. Uh, yeah, you just can't be patient looking for an opening against the guy who's hard to hit um, with isolated shots. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, Broner for you can call him a, a Mayweather turtle shell shoulder roll impersonator all. You want to. The fact remains is is that he is a poor man's Floyd Mayweather in that turtle shell, and the turtle shell is designed to thwart and frustrate and to defend single shots. Yep. But that's what he was doing. Um, you know, 
He's trying to counterpunch with a guy that all he wanted to do was counterpunch and pot shot all night long. Um, so it just became a waiting game. The recipe to beat Adrian Broner is to bring pressure, make him fight off balance, but also because Broner doesn't throw many punches. Make him move his feet. Yes. That's all you have to do. Not much happened in the opening round, but Habib, way too cautious, playing right into Broner's wheelhouse. In the second round, the Russian was more assertive, landing solid shots, although in spurts, they clearly did land. Broner's trying to win this round with counter uppercuts and a pot shot here and there. Pretty close round, but Abib controlled the ring, and that was the difference. We head to the third. Abib lands a big right to open it. He is moving Broner backwards. He has Broner on the ropes, and Adrian rocks him with a hard left to get away. Broner remains in the high guard and gives the body real estate away to land his counters. Broner continues to place feelers out with the jab, but there isn't much there. Just another tool to separate himself from his opponent. Broner is not nearly as active as he needs to be so far in this fight. Maybe he's waiting to land that home run shot, but he's getting outworked. We head to the fourth. It's more of the same. Broner is throwing more punches now and landing more flush, and he hits a straight right down the middle that rocks Khabib. Khabib is having success with his pressure, but here again, just stops throwing punches. Yep. So we head to the fifth round, and the fighters exchange in the corner. Broner goes into the turtle shell. Khabib has success until he's elbowed by Broner, and they're separated. The problem has good success hereafter until the final 20 minutes when Khabib digs multiple minutes. 20 minutes. I wrote 20 minutes. Until Khabib digs multiple <laughs> hooks to the body. We head to the sixth round, and Khabib starts wailing on Broner in the corner while Broner does his best Mayweather impersonation. Broner could take control of this fight, if he wants to, he could turn up his output and his aggression and seal the deal. Khabib stays composed, even though Broner is deflecting many of his shots. The second half of the round sees both guys firing up their offense, both having success. And in these final seconds of the sixth round, both throwing bombs and landing. Broner landing just a few more. We fast forward to the eighth, and Broner begins to showboat, talking to Pauli Malinaji, sitting ringside. He's looking into the crowd while Khabib is throwing, and he's completely disrespecting his opponent. Call me old-fashioned, Vin. Okay? And I, taught, I, already, I already prefaced it and put out my disclaimer early in this and tried to go ahead and qualify it right out of the gate. I don't want to be called old-fashioned, but go ahead and call me old-fashioned. <laughs> um, dude, I just think opponents in boxing deserve far more respect than sometimes they get with the showing up your opponent. I've never, ever been a proponent of showing up your opponent no it's it's disgraceful i mean show the guy some respect he's he's in there being a man just like you are got his you're in the ring your life's on the line i don't care what anybody says at any time uh, yeah show the guy some freaking respect as as terrible as as you may think he is and it's a joke now and you're just in there sparring sparring session for adrian broner show some respect yeah you want to show how bad to the bone you are? Finish him. Yeah, knock him out. Knock him out. You'll be revered, not criticized. No. But Broner may never be able to escape his pathetic need for attention. Uh, the ninth, Broner not doing anything, lands a big uppercut, but he's more concerned with what the crowd's up to. Um, if you want to hang out with your buddies so bad, knock your opponent out, and you can get there real quick. <laughs> how about he said, I feel like at one point he was saying, hey, what's up? And he got... He got halfway into what's, and he caught a spit came flying out of his mouth. Freaking clown, man. Uh, the 10th and the 11th, not much more showboating. Um, 12th round, I'm not sure why. 
45 seconds left in the fight. Harvey Doc jumps in and just stops it. Yeah, from three consecutive punches landed that weren't even really any of the better punches of the fight. It's all on paper, Vin. Yeah. It's all on paper. He can say he became a four-division champion and won by knockout. Yeah, what a joke. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. Habib did not have the tools or the capability to win this fight. Nah, I mean, we knew that coming in. I, I, everything that we thought coming into this fight uh, came true watching it. Adrian Broner did a tad bit more than he's done in his previous fights. Agreed. Uh, threw five, six more punches around maybe. Yep. And he landed a couple flashy straight rights. Boy, who's that sound like? There's no, no desire to turn it into any kind of a fight. No, no just killer instinct at any point in time it's just uh, we've we watched this for years with floyd we got sick of it uh, you're a half-assed version of that i definitely don't want to watch that look i always equate this oh I, I i always relate boxing with basketball all the time right right because it's a game of ebbs and flows and it's a game that is predicated off of one-on-one matchups, and those one-on-one matchups, you know, the balance of right. that matchup can change at any point. Right. Right. So I think I think boxing and basketball are always um, a good way to try to compare or try to paint a picture for what is going on inside the ring. And I'll tell you right now, Vince, Adrian Broner, just like Floyd Mayweather before him, is the guy when you're playing street basketball that you do not want to give the ball to you're never going to get it back. No. Okay? He That will sit there and cross everybody's ankles up. He will break everybody's ankles out on the court. He will go around. If there was a shot clock, he'd violate probably 10 minutes worth of them in a row. An <laughs> and one video of crossovers, showboating, and the crowd around that street ball game is going, ooh, ah, every time he breaks somebody's ankle and everybody's laughing, and that feeds the fire of somebody who is showboating. Meanwhile, Terrence Crawford and Victor Postal, um, they're getting rebounds. They're doing behind-the-back bounce passes. Um, they're hitting threes in the corner. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You may cross, you know what I'm saying? Like, like Adrian Broner, he may cross up Terrence Crawford and get by him, but Crawford's coming behind him and pinning the ball on the backboard. <laughs> I like that. You, that's good. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that. that's his game. Oh, I know. And, and, and for some reason, there's a value in that. Like, I've used this analogy before. People, they're not going to go – you're not going to be able to sell 10 million videos of Michael Jordan – draining the game-winning shot game six against the Utah Jazz in the 1998 finals. You're not going to sell 10 million copies of that. But what you will sell 10 million copies of is a guy doing crossovers and breaking people's ankles, and the crowd reacts to that. And somehow, some way, that gets more respect, more acknowledgement, and becomes greater clickbait. Speaks to the same reason why, for some, for some ridiculous reason, Floyd Mayweather's punches count more than everybody else's because his one punch is that killer crossover that makes his guy fall over right so somehow he gets more recognition and more points for his ability to make his opponent look stupid at some point you have to make a shot you have to make a basket yeah can't just dribble around in circles all game long that's what adrian brunner does he does man and look i i, I guess you know what 
boxing always needs a guy like this, right? They always need a guy that's just a, that there's always one. There's always a guy in boxing that you're like, oh, my God, this guy's so good. Why doesn't he just utilize his abilities and, and just get rid of this frigging guy that he's clearly, clearly outclasses? No. 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 You know, look, I just talked about it with Julian Ramirez. We talk about it with Vasily Lomachenko. Like, Chuck Latito, Juan Francisco Estrada, these guys are so unbelievably great because they do everything that Floyd Mayweather, they do everything that Adrian Broner does. Mm -hmm. They do that. They do that. They make, except they don't stop to gloat and embarrass their opponent. They don't waste that time. That lull when Mayweather is doing a juke move, dodges a punch, and skates around on the outside, during that time frame, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, Vasily Lomachenko, they do that same exact move. But they don't stop to run around the ring and then come back and do it again. During that time frame, they unload 10 different punches from 10 different angles. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. You're exactly right. No. Oh, man. Calm down. Wish this microphone wasn't attached to this damn boom. <laughs> Cross you up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, very clearly, hand-selected opponent. Uh, yeah. There to make Broner look good. Um, it's just really too bad they had to attach a major world title to it, don't you think? Yeah, it's horrible. At least they didn't talk about it too much. Yeah, I think at one point in the in the in the telecast and the broadcast, man, um, they said something. I think Mauro Ronaldo kind of actually took a big old dump on the WBA. Did you hear him? Yeah, I do remember. I can't remember exactly what I said, but yeah, I remember saying something about derogatory towards them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, it, uh, yeah, I'm kind of glad they did too. But you know, at the end of the day, oh, actually, they didn't even like raise the belt at the end. Did you even see him like with it at all? I mean, it's PBC standards. I saw in Showtime, but. Let's be honest. Would Broner have looked this good against a more deserving, higher-ranked fighter like Amir Mom, Jose Benavidez, and Victor Postal? No, he loses all three of those fights. Fairly easily loses all three of those fights. Paulie and Al Bernstein feel that he would beat all of them. Did you hear what they said? Yeah, all of a sudden him and Paulie are best friends now, huh? I think Adrian Broner's really good against B-level fighters. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to hang trophies on a guy who's not really elite, makes it kind of tacky and generic. No, I'm right with you, man. When you, we all see, we've all seen the best of the best, Adrian can't handle it. Yeah. It's too much for him. Um, I don't know. I'm just, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm, I'm just glad that he at least took the fight serious enough to make weight. Yeah. And now he wants to fight Ashley Theo Payne. <sighs> not ranked by any of the sanctioning bodies. Um, he's 35 years old. And he's 39-6-1 with 11 knockouts. Well, they had an argument at the Mayweather gym one time, so the score needs to be settled. What did you think about his quotes when he said, you know what, uh, I'm not taking these hard fights. He basically said, I'm not taking these hard fights anymore. Uh, I'm going to start picking my own fights now. So now he's going to cherry pick for the rest of his career because he doesn't want to get beat and embarrassed and his ego can't take it anymore. Not surprised. I'm not surprised to hear that come out of him. It the he's the guy that's entitled and thinks he's in that position in the sport. Dude, nobody respects you right now. I don't care what belt you have yeah. that you just won. You get no respect. I guarantee you all those guys in the top 10 say, oh, please, 
Yeah. Send the contract over, Adrian. We can fight tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tells Floyd to put Ashley Theopane on his jet and, uh, Bosses talk to bosses, Ken. The bosses talk to bosses. I'll bring the girl out that boy like Bruce Jenner. <laughs> I can't believe he said that. And then I, be- I, can't, I can't believe he said it. What am I saying? <laughs> Dude, I, as much as we talk shit about him and I can't stand who he is, that guy cracks me up, dude. Uh, unbelievable, man. Uh, that shit was just perfect, you know? It was. I mean, dude, his one-liners, I just... Uh, they're better than Floyd one-liners. That's where he does uh, have Floyd beat. Floyd has no. Floyd has a personality of a of a gnat. Yeah, he does. Okay, let's move to the undercard. Um, I mean, right? Broner is what he is. Yeah, let's. There's nothing else to be said there. They should just keep him on Showtime, right? I think so. He's yeah. found a home. Well, I mean, he can be himself. At least let him. That's the best part about him, right? Without his chucking and jiving, coming out to the ring. Yeah, come on. And the antics afterwards. What? What is there? No, nah, not much, man. Some mediocre boxing that's quick. Yeah, some flashy hands, <laughs> some crossover moves. <laughs> just, just an and one tape, man. You never get to see the guy make the shot. All right, Jose Petraza versus Edner Cherry, IBF Junior Lightweight Championship on the line. The opening frame sees Cherry very energetic and ready to go. Pedraza, clearly the more refined boxer, but Cherry makes up for it with his determination. We head to the second. Pedraza is elusive with his movement, ducking and slipping multiple power shots from Cherry. There are two moments when they clash heads and lucky that there are no cuts. Cherry is more active, but Pedraza is really slippery, showing his class. It speaks to a high level of ring IQ when you can be a defensive fighter without running. He stays inside, looks for offense, but just bobs and weaves four days he was elusive early in this fight he was he looked very 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 sharp he's a guy that i've, I've kind of come to respect his skills a lot man yeah yeah absolutely um pedraza's working well shooting counter shots from a low angle of attack um throughout the early parts of this fight cherry doesn't have many answers to what pedraza is doing because the puerto rican fighter takes what the 33 year old gives him we head to the fourth and a straight right to the body by pedraza is unique because of the way uh, he goes about his business. We see the punch all the time, but we see it in more of a counter. We don't see it as a, like sort of a way to launch. I mean, right. he gets down almost where his chest is parallel to the mat and just ducks his head down in there. And it's like, uh, it's, I think it's what John Molina Jr. tries to do. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But with John Molina, it looks like he's just closing his eyes and swinging Hail Marys. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, Paulie wants Cherry to be so awesome, so bad in this fight. Every time, dude, it's so apparent that I speculate this, and a lot of people agree with me that Paulie's biggest problem with Pacquiao, I've said it a million times, is that he cannot live with the fact that Manny Pacquiao dominated every fighter that knocked. Paulie Malinaji out. Yeah, Pacquiao almost knocked out every fighter. <laughs> knocked out Malinaji. Yeah, exactly. So, but it seems like every time Paulie calls a fight of somebody that he has fought and beat, he tries to build this guy up to be oh, wor- yeah, yeah. a world class world beater. Mm-hmm. So he can be like at the end of every fluffing sentence, he can be like, yeah, but I beat him. Yeah. <laughs> Great, Paulie. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Ender Cherry's a B level fighter. Just take it, Polly. okay? I don't think this fight is even remotely close early on. Um, I think the first half of the fight is a complete shutout. 
I, get, I gave one round to Cherry. Yeah. Petraza is just picking his shots, dude. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his, his sniper nickname um, is right on point. Both fighters come out physical simultaneously in this round. Pedraza is still elusive in the sixth as Cherry lands some hard flush shots, to keep him honest. And Cherry follows these power shots with a lot of pressure. Pedraza is expending a ton of energy just bobbing and weaving as Cherry begins to close the gap and lay his weight on him. Cherry throws 112 punches in this sixth round. Not landing many of them, but man, 112 where a majority of them are power shots. He was whiffing an awful lot. I don't think we've seen anybody whiff as much as he did in that fight. And look, in the middle rounds, he started to, at six, seven, eight, it looked like Pedraza was wearing down and he was starting to shift the momentum his way. Yeah, you know, um, honestly, man, in that eighth, as, a, as, as we fast forward, I'm surprised at the favoritism um, that Cherry's inaccurate punching was getting. Yeah, I actually scored the eighth for Pedraza. Yeah, so did I. So did I. Um, but Bernstein and Paulie were riding the uh, Cherry train for sure. Pedraza switches to southpaw primarily in this round, which I think was a huge mistake. Yeah, it was. A huge mistake. Um, Cherry doesn't like getting hit, and he is beginning to wince as Pedraza uh, lands flunch. But you know what, though, man? Honestly, it really Pedraza didn't have much on his punches. No. But at this point, you could tell that it was just, I think, the repeated attention that Pedraza was lending to Cherry's body, regardless mm-hmm. of how hard he was punching. Uh, he's throwing half his punches down there, and it was begin to, you would see a facial expression in response to these shots. Yeah, it doesn't always take one big one to get you. Uh, uh, accumulation of body punches, just regular touching the body up. After a while, it's going to start to hurt. Yeah. Um, yeah, no doubt about it. We head to the ninth. Cherry's trying to be the aggressor, but Pedraza grabs a hold. There's a bunch of holding and lectures from the referee in the opening minute of the round. Pedraza not liking Cherry running right at him with a head of steam. Cherry's taking a physical game to the slick sniper, and Pedraza looked like he was taking the round off, to be completely honest with you. Maybe he just wants Cherry to wear down, or maybe he's getting tired of being out physical. Yeah. You know? Head to the 10th. The fight has lost most of its luster at this point. Um... You know, the first half was a chess match, opposing styles. Now Pedraza looks tired. Cherry looks sloppy in his attack. Yeah. And just began smothering his own range. Yeah. Cherry was getting wide with his punches. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, I don't know, man. The 10th round, I just kept seeing Cherry getting way too close. It was like, dude, stop. Throw your punch. And then you can come in and clinch him. Right. Don't run right past. Oh, I was going to throw, but it's too late. Um, and there just didn't seem to be any power. And I tell you, you didn't have any power. Pedraza. All of his power left him when he moved to Southpaw. Yeah, it did. You know, yeah, he had, Cherry uh, turned up the the volume at that point in time. Pedraza is trying to fend off the challenger. Cherry is closing strong, but Pedraza answers the veteran. Cherry is the more aggressive fighter so far in the championship rounds. Whoever wins this round wins the fight. Possibly, I mean, it was that close. Mm-hmm. Cherry pushed those mid-rounds, and took four out of five of the mid-rounds. Yes, he did. Easily. Um, we head to the 12th and final round. Both men come out firing, both looping hooks with both hands. Cherry getting hit solid and resorts to headlocks and grabbing Pedraza's leg. The ref keeps separating the tired fighters. They wing punches till the bell. Pedraza lands the most effective shots, and landing them effective keeps Cherry far enough away for the rest of this fight. Pedraza closes the final frame with solid landing counter shots and shuts the books on a pretty competitive fight. 
man, if this was a 10 round fight, it would have ended probably on a more uppity note. Yeah. When you say, I think so. Kind of yeah. lost its luster. It was like, okay, these guys are, yeah, they're done. As tired as I am. <laughs> Considering I think I was watching this fight at like two 30 in the morning. Yeah. That was the last one I watched too. Scorecards. What was your card, Vin? I had it a draw, 114-114. I had it 115-113 to for Pedraza. Yeah. Pretty close. I gave Pedraza the last round, and that was the draw. I mean... So you had Cherry winning up until the last round? I had Cherry winning up until the 12th. So my statement of this 11th round could be the one... Oh, yeah. ...was true. It was definitely true. Um, Yeah. The judges' scorecards 116-112 to for Cherry, and then 117-111. Times two for Pedraza. Split decision victory. Well, I, mean, well, I don't know. How does that happen? I don't even know. Uh, they got they got it right, I guess. Uh, you know, Pedra- Pedraza probably did deserve to win that fight. But come on, guys. Those scores again. Here we go again. Oh, man. I don't know, man. Maybe Pedraza hurt his hand. Maybe that's why he switched to Southpaw. I don't see any reason for it. Right. Yeah, and, it, and he wasn't he wasn't any more successful. He was less successful as a southpaw. So, I, yeah, he must have. There had to have been something there. Well, Cherry's most effective weapon was the one weapon that is the kryptonite to a a, a southpaw orthodox matchup. Right, the right hand, and he yeah. just completely opened himself up to it and gave Cherry. A, Here you go, man. I'll let you back into this. Yeah, you want you want you want in this fight? Here you go. Yeah, there had to have been a reason for it. Cherry was wild. wasn't landing as much. His output would tell us that. Um, Edner Cherry fought well, but in my opinion, didn't deserve to take Pedraza's title. No. Good fight. Yes. Robert Easter, um, you made a comment after his fight in the show extreme portion of the early pre-televised. Um, you're pretty high on Robert Easter moving forward. He, he's <sighs> scary, boy. Scary. I mean, rangy. He's got quickness. He's got speed. He, he looks to have everything that, that it takes mm-hmm. to be great. I mean, there's still a lot that, that, that he needs to prove. Yeah, he's a little sloppy. Yeah, it, it, it's there. It needs to be refined, and he could be something special. J-Rock's trainer, Stephen Edwards, seems to believe that Robert Easter is one of the top few great prospects in the sport. He tweets after the fight, Easter should be mentioned as one of the best prospects near the weight, every bit as good as Felix Verdejo. You pump the brakes on that one a little bit there. But, yeah, I, I think he's not far. Um, yeah. Uh, he also goes on to tweet, people repeat um, what certain fighters' PR departments say. Of course, right? Nobody has, uh, the, nobody has their own opinion. They had to have been told if they're saying that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because people, like... If it wasn't for the all the the top rank PR machine, um, how would we do the show? We would. Well, yeah, that's that is first and foremost. There would be no show, right? But without that PR machine, I mean, dude, Felix Verdejo would be exposed. Like people would realize that he is actually not very good, right? He's all hype. Yeah, of course, we see it every time he gets in the ring. Yeah, that's kind of a. I don't know, man. Sometimes he says some some things, you know, the whole. He takes a stance and the, uh, some, you're right. Sometimes it's like, come on, come on. Yeah, he takes these stances of trying to like logically. He makes an, like makes these arguments that uh, Andre Ward is the A side because you think he's a better fighter. Like that's I don't know, man. 
You don't know Robert Easter, and he does, Ken, and he's telling you. Ah, no, it just it, come on, man. It is what it is. You right. just got to read somebody's Twitter feed to see that, you know, there's, I don't know, there's kind of an agenda here. Oh, definitely. You know what I mean? Definitely. It's like, um, it's okay. I think it's okay that uh, a Puerto Rican fighter who many regard to be the best prospect in boxing, I think that's okay. He doesn't have to be black. No. You know, it's okay to have really fast out of this world hands and not be black. I just think this whole kind of agenda thing, like, you know, black fighters are better at everything kind of thing is kind of tired, man, especially in an era where Eastern Europeans are dominating the sport. Oh my God. Are one they? black fighter on, on the pound for pound list, dude. Yeah. And, I don't it, can't remember the last time that's been the case. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It, it, it's, I mean, I don't know, man. Stop with the whole agenda thing, man. Seriously. We get it. We get it. <laughs> Robert Easter's not a top five. He's not even a top ten prospect, dude. I hate no, to say it. No. Now, J-Rock Julian Williams most certainly is. Um, Jamal Herring, eh. Eh. Yeah. He's got some work to do. Thank you for your service to your country. Um, news and notes. Deontay Wilder's manager discusses the Povetkin fight. Um, quote from Jay Diaz. If Povetkin's fighting in November and he has a tough fight, then he won't be able to fight in December, and I don't see any reason why we should wait. Why should we wait on him? We're the heavyweight champion of the world. If he's ready to fight in December, that's one thing. If he fights Wok and he's not ready to fight in December or January, then you know, then we'll you know we're not going to wait for him. We're committed to being the most active heavyweight champion in history. We're not going to let anything stop us from being that. We want the biggest fights. But while those fights are being negotiated, we're not just going to uh, stop fighting. We want to be active. We want to do something that the people want. Vince, let me ask you a question. That's complete bullshit, man. Vince, is two questions, okay? I hate to be so black and white about this. <laughs> <laughs> is the Wilder camp laying the groundwork to get out of this fight with Povetkin, creating scenarios where they have an excuse for the WBC to break their own rules or make an exception to their mandates? Or is this just a manager answering a question that doesn't have the answers to it yet? Uh, I'll take the latter, please. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, you'll take A? Yeah. <laughs> when I read this on BoxingScene.com, I said to myself, here it begins. Oh, I, I mean, dude, I, Mar- I want to tune out when you're saying it. <laughs> I want to tune out when you're saying it. Marius Wach is probably going to get stopped in this fight. Yeah. Okay? Marius Wach is in this. Povetkin is fighting him for one reason, to get practice against a tall, Deontay Wilder-sized fighter. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you really think Marius Wach has any chance against Povetkin? Nah, Wach's uh, had his better days. Washed up, man. Yeah. I, I just can't believe it. they're getting it out early, man. They're getting way out in front of this thing. It's, it's so frustrating, man. Hey, they want to be the most active heavyweight champion ever. Come on. Give me what a kind break. of logic is that? It's just like Floyd Mayweather wanting to be, wanting to break a heavyweight, maybe the 10th or 11th best heavyweight of all times, 49 and 0 record. It, it makes no sense. Uh, nobody cares. And, uh, Andre Durrell has dropped out of his October 17th fight with Blake Caparello. Darrell versus Caparello was slated to be the co-feature on the undercard of Lamont Peterson versus Felix Diaz. Did, did I see enter Demetrius Andre? Or no, he's fighting in Connecticut. That's right. Not on the same card. Who? 
you know, boo-boo. Oh, boo-boo Andre. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's fighting in an untelevised card um, in Rhode Island? Connect- Connecticut. Connecticut. Connect- yeah. Connecticut. Um, yeah, man. Uh, October 17th is a very, very busy day indeed. Um, man, there's a lot on the horizon. There is, buddy. There's a lot on the horizon. Kind of an off week. There's some stuff going around the world. A couple key fighters uh, here and there um, are going to be doing the deal. It's the last slow week before this thing takes off, man. Yeah, dude. It's going to be crazy. It is. October 17th. We're going to need like 10 episodes for October 17th. <laughs> Seriously, man. Going to need like to do like an episode for every fight. There's so many damn episodes. I mean, there's so many damn fights. Um yeah, let's take a quick look at what the schedule says. Before we let you all run here on um, episode 79 of The Tale of the Tape Before Vin Falls Asleep, um, he's got one eye open. I always got one eye open. Come on now. Yeah, buddy. Right. One eye on the prize. All right, let's take a look at the schedule here. Episode 79 is on. We got... Miguel Vasquez returning to the ring tomorrow night for toe-to-toe Tuesdays. Could not find a more boring fighter. Jesus, man. Julius Jackson versus Jose Uzcatagai. We Uh, saw Uzcatagai in a very ugly, awkward fight against Matt Korobov last year. Like Julius Jackson, though. Yeah, so do I. I mean, hopefully he knocks the guy out, but Uzcatagai is the... He's just the perfect fighter to make Julius Jackson not knock him out. He's so... Awkward. Yeah, he's gonna make Jackson look bad. Remember during the uh, the I, I can't remember what undercard it was on, but that fight was televised. The Korobov Uskata guy, and I remember the announcing team not really. They even admitted it during the broadcast, like we don't really have much on this guy. Nobody's ever heard of him, before. right? Ah, <laughs> uh, man, but he is awkward, man. Awkward in indeed. Um, and then in sat uh, on Saturday, there's a PBC on NBC Sportsnet. It's like a I don't know. Is October 10th like an Irish holiday or something? <laughs> Who knows, man? I don't know. We need to call our friends in Belfast. Um, talk to old Steve Wellings from the Irish Boxing Review and see what's going on with this. Let me get this correct. So Danny O'Connor, who was the B-side against Paulie Malinaji before Paulie got hurt in training, which that fight was supposed to be an undercard fight right. for another fight, is now going to be headlining a PBC show. On set on Saturday, October tenth, Jonathan Guzman and Danny Aquino in the co-feature. Excuse me, who? Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> or, it, just, it just keeps getting better with these guys, man. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. Um, Jorge Linares returns to the ring. I wish that fight was televised. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, he's he's an awesome fighter to watch fight. There's always a risk of getting knocked down, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from Manchester, England, Terry Flanagan squares off against Diego Magdaleno for Flanagan's uh, WBO lightweight crown. And a fight that actually is really intriguing to me is Liam Smith squares off against John Thompson for uh, Boo Boo Andrade's vacant 154-pound crown. The John Thompson story just blows my mind, Vin. This guy just... He's a he's a he's an extra for the Boxino tournament. Comes in, knocks everybody out in the Boxino tournament, mm-hmm. and he's just this colorful character who, during his ring entrance, carries his, his 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 corner carries paintings that he paints before the fights, and they carry them like his uh, visions of how the fight's going to go. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I guess he's out there, man. But uh, good for him. <laughs> Dude goes from being a 
a walk on. Yeah. You know, to getting a title shot. Got yeah. it. And guess what he's doing? He's going to go get it. Yeah. He's going to England in somebody else's backyard. And he's got a very good shot in that fight. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Uh, Liam Smith is not regarded as the best of the um, fighting Smiths. So we'll be back, you know, we'll be back in a few days. Um, Might have a couple special guests, might not. Definitely going to have some special guests leading up to October 17th. We look to have Michael Montero from Montero on Boxing back on the show and uh, the editor of ringtv.com, Doug Fisher. So we look forward to having both of them join us in the lead up to those fights, man. So that will do the deal. All righty. It's getting late, brother. Yes, it is. It is indeed. Episode 79 in the books. But we'll be back on Thursday for episode 80. 80. Ocho. Ocho. Seto? 80. Ochenta? 80. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Ocho Cinco. Yeah. I don't know why. Anyways, folks, it's a very tired evening here on the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast here on TheBoxingRant.com. I'm your host, Kenny Keith, and you can follow me on Twitter at Kenny Keith Jr. Follow my co-host, Vince Cummings, at Vince Cummings 81. Subscribe to the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast on iTunes today and leave us a message and rant with us. Podcast at TheBoxingRant.com. Dot com. Big up to all of you for tuning in to this very special post-fight edition of the Pound for Pound King of Boxing Podcasts. We'll see you in a few days. You've been listening to the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast here on TheBoxingRant.com. Muchas gracias, everybody.